Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Before we begin our time in God's word this morning, let's just ask his guidance and direction as we focus upon what he has to teach us. Let's pray. Father, you have revealed yourself to us in your word. We have both the written word and the living word, the Lord Jesus Christ. And in your written revelation, you have given us that which we need to know. And you have informed us of how we should think and how we should live as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. You have informed us as to who you are and how we are to think as you think. Now, Father, as we study your word today, we pray that we might be challenged by the things that we study, and as we think through various issues related to uh, life and related to uh, what you have revealed to us, we pray that you can help us to understand how these things apply in our own thinking and in our own lives, and that we would be challenged by God the Holy Spirit in these areas. And, Father, we we ask your blessing on this time in your word. In Christ's name, amen. Open your Bibles with me this morning to 2 Kings chapter 11, 2 Kings chapter 11. If you have followed various contemporary events, you will observe that we live in a culture where there is a certain segment of this culture that has a <clears throat> taken a position against uh, violence in, in principle. They represent themselves as being pacifist in relationship to military conflict. They also represent themselves as being against the private ownership of, of guns, and they promote uh, extreme regulation of private ownership of guns and weapons. They are usually the same group of people that uh, are against capital punishment and who have a way of looking at the a penal system in a way that focuses more on rehabilitation than punishment. All of these things are linked and work together uh, in terms of certain basic presuppositions about human life. And that is why many of those people who hold those positions also take certain other positions in relationship to life because they really don't fundamentally and biblically understand the value of life, even though they often say that they do. And that's one of those strange little quirks about people is that they often say that they are defending and promoting one thing when, in fact, what they are actually working working for is something that is against uh, that particular position. They claim to be in the right when they are in the wrong. Uh, we will see an example of this again t- uh, today in our study, for when the tide turns against Athaliah, she screams out that it is treason when it is she herself who is the traitor. We saw the same thing with uh, Ahaziah earlier, that he thought that it was, or, or with Jehoram of the, of the northern kingdom of Israel, <clears throat> when he saw that he was about to be uh, executed under the under orders from God, he cried out treason as well when he himself was the traitor against God and against the law that God had given uh, given to Israel. And so we always have to be very careful not to get caught up into simply thinking about the superficial things that people claim that they 
are, are doing, the superficial ways in which they claim uh, the things that they claim that they are uh, promoting because often they, people say the right things, but they're doing the wrong thing. They use the right words in order to mask and camouflage uh, their wrong agenda. And we see uh, the, the basic doctrine that's the several basic doctrines that are embedded within the story of of uh, Jehoash, who is the king that comes to the throne here in in Second Kings uh, chapter eleven, and he is, and we'll have to study in the next couple of weeks. Embedded within this account, there are, uh, as I said, these three doctrines. The first is that that relates to killing relates to murder, relates to self-defense and war. All of these things really fit within the same basic uh, approach of Scripture to the value of human life. And so there are many different facets to this particular doctrine, but embedded here is the doctrine related to uh, self-defense. As we go through the episode related to Jehoash as the king of the southern kingdom in, in Judah, uh, he's going to implement a way to uh, restore and repair the temple that has been uh, ignored and under disrepair for a number of years. And in doing that, he is going to levy some new uh, taxes, giving, uh, call for free will giving, according to the purpose of their heart, which is the same phrase Paul uses in the New Testament. And so as we get into chapter 12, we'll be looking at what the Bible teaches about taxation because that's essentially what the tithe was in the Old Testament and as well as free will giving. So these episodes in the Old Testament connect to key doctrines that are explained clearly in the New Testament. And that's one reason I like studying the Old Testament is we see the what to many people are abstract doctrines in the New Testament worked out in, in the lives and activity of people and events in the Old Testament. Now, what we have seen as we've been looking at these chapters uh, the last few weeks, chapters 8 through 11 with God's judgment, which he brought against the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom to some extent. We'll see the completion of that uh, this morning is that this ultimately relates back to the character of God. Is God able to protect his promise so that he can fulfill his promise? Is he able to do that which he has promised to do and bring about that which he has told people that he will will do? So as we saw last time, this relates to his integrity, to his righteousness, to his justice, to his love, to his truth. And so God has at the very core of his being, at the core of his essence, uh, a righteous, true uh, existence. He is the very definition of righteousness and truth. He is, the scripture says, holy in all that he does and all that he says. So we start from that starting point. We know that whatever we see God doing, it is by definition righteous and holy. And therefore, it challenges us to perhaps reevaluate or rethink our own understanding of certain ethical uh, principles so that they are brought into conformity with God's uh, righteousness and with God's character. And so that also underlies the episodes that are occurring here in uh, this section of Second Kings. Now, last uh, time I pointed out as well that this really focuses, this whole issue of God's faithfulness focuses on his covenant with David. In that covenant with David, God promised three things to David, that he would have an eternal house or dynasty, an eternal kingdom, and an eternal throne. And you can only have an eternal house, kingdom, and throne if your lineage is going to go on without end in an infinite series of descendants, or if one of those descendants is himself going to be eternal, which, of course, is the case. The Davidic covenant ultimately focuses on the seed of the woman, as promised back in Genesis chapter 3.15. The seed of the woman goes through the seed of Abraham. The seed of Abraham goes through the seed of David. And so Jesus Christ is the uh, the focal point of those seed promises. And Satan understands that. 
and that is another aspect of the backdrop to these events, is that Satan's, uh, Satan's strategy in the Old Testament is to prevent God from being able to fulfill uh, the covenant with David, or earlier with Abraham, uh, because if he can prevent God from bringing the promised seed, then he wins. And so there is always an assault upon the seed of Abraham and the seed of David. Assault upon the seed of Abraham is, as the Jews, all anti-Semitism in history is evil and wicked and is the doctrine of Satan. And and then as a subcategory of that, there is the assault on the seed of David, the line of David. And as I pointed out last time, that line is getting uh, fairly narrow because there have been various assaults upon the royal line in Judah. Uh, Jehoram has killed all of his brothers. And then now we saw that when uh, Athaliah his <clears throat> comes to the throne, his wife, that the first thing she does is, uh, as a foreshadowing of uh, someone like Stalin, she instigates a hit squad against everybody in the divine line, and she is going to destroy and kill, have all of the royal heirs murdered, so in an attempt to completely blot out and destroy the lineage of David. She is not of the line of David. She is the only ruler in the southern kingdom that is not in the lineage of David. This is an aberration in the southern kingdom. And she is uh, virtually a usurper of the throne. And in her attempt to blot out uh, the line of David, she is foiled by her uh, the, the her the sister of, uh, of uh, Ahaziah, her son. Uh, this is her uh, this is Jehoshaphat, who is the. Uh, the, probably the daughter of Jehoram and Athaliah. There may have been other wives, so I'm not, the scripture doesn't state that she is Athaliah's daughter, so we can't be sure of that. But she is the sister to Ahaziah and the daughter of Jehoram, and she is going to block Athaliah by rescuing one of the infants, the infant son of Ahaziah by the name of Jehoash or, or uh, Joash, here's the uh, lineage here. The left-hand side, the yellow column, reflects the, the lineage of the house of Omri, the rulers in the northern kingdom. The, those in purple on the right represent the house and the lineage of David from Asa down to Joash. And you see Athaliah is located between them and in yellow because she is not a direct descendant of David, and she brings with her the evil baggage of the house of Omri, the house of the house of Ahab, the worship of Baal and all of the false religion. And so this is an attack at a spiritual level because spirituality drives everything, folks. Everything gets driven by theology. We live in a world today that wants to make theology something very private and personal. An individual spiritual life is something that is that is their own. It's in a realm of pure subjectivity. And that comes because of the influence of a German philosopher by the name of Immanuel Kant back in the late 1700s who redefines religion as something that is just purely subjective, an individual's personal private perception of that which he calls the the uh, the noumenal, that which is beyond our our senses, and this thinking that comes back to Kant revolutionized the thinking, completely changed the thinking of Western civilization. That's why it's referred to as the Copernican revolution in thought in in astronomy. Copernicus argued that the solar system was not uh, centered around the earth. It was centered around the sun. And so when that came to be accepted, uh, astronomers had to shift all of their views about how the solar system operated. And no longer was it pictured as all of the planets and the sun and the moon uh, revolving around the earth. Everything was now understood to revolve around the sun. So it went from a geocentric view of the solar system to a heliocentric view of the solar system. Everything changed because the center focal point 
of the solar system shifted from the earth to the sun. Well, that's the same kind of thing that happened in the realm of ideas, in the realm of thoughts with Immanuel Kant. There was a shift in the center of thinking rather than uh, the view that you could uh, actually understand objective truth, things as they actually are. Kant said, no, we can never understand things as they truly are. We can only understand things as we perceive them. And so you really never can quite get out of your own head into objective reality. So that introduced this whole concept of subjectivity in knowledge. And from Immanuel Kant on, there's been this this ongoing devastating uh, view of knowledge as being that which is, and truth as being that which is only subjectively perceived. So you have your religion and I have mine, and whatever works for you is just fine. That's how it's worked itself out today. So everybody has their own truth because truth is not externally existent as an absolute capital true uh, thing in and of itself. It is only that which we perceive. And so everybody has their own truth. So with Kant, everything, everything shifted. But this kind of subjective view of truth is completely foreign to Moses, Jesus, and Paul. They never understood truth that way. Christianity is based on a, on an actual ob- objective view of truth and reality, and it is defined by God, and it is revealed in His Word. And so the uh, Southern Kingdom of Judah had fallen prey to an ancient form of this kind of subjectivity, which is the worship of Baal, the worship of these various fertility idols. And it was all about how you felt about uh, the gods, and there was a lot of emotionalism that went along with it, and they were involved in a lot of uh, sexual uh, acts that uh, occurred in relationship to the worship of the fertility gods and goddesses, and so it was quite perverse. And all of this was influencing and impacting the southern kingdom of Judah. So this was a threat to the house and the lineage uh, of David. And so the assault is coming on the Davidic line. Uh, Joash is uh, rescued and hidden away in the... Uh, in the temple, so that an Athaliah becomes the evil ruler. Now, in Second Kings 11:4, we read, "In the okay, in the seventh year, uh, Jehoiada, who is the high priest, Jehoiada sent and brought the captains of hundreds of the bodyguards and the escorts and brought them into the house of the Lord to him. So, for these seven years." Uh, Jehoash has been hidden in the temple. He has been taught and he has been trained by uh, Jehoiada, who is the high priest. So his life is shaped by the teaching of the Word of God and listening to the uh, reading of the Torah, the Word of God. And according to Deuteronomy, this was to be one of the primary training tools for any leader or king in Israel. In fact, when a man became king, he was to make a handwritten copy for himself of the Torah. There's no record that any did. Some say because there's no record that never happened. I don't think that's true. I think there's that Solomon probably did in his early years. I think it's possible that Jehoash did now, and later there will be another king in the southern kingdom, and I think it's very likely that he did as well because of the fact that they were so focused upon the word. But we know that during this this six-year period that Jehoash or Joash, and the terms are, those names shift back and forth, uh, are Joash is the, is brought in train. Now when he's seven years old, now we normally think of someone being ready to be king when they're much older, but remember there are various patterns in the scripture related to sevens. And so I think that there is, I'm not sure what it is, but I think there's some significance to the fact that when he was seven years of age, that he was brought out and uh, revealed to be alive. And for all of this time, everyone has thought that he was dead. Now, in Second Kings 11.4, we're given the information that <clears throat> at this time, Jehoiada sent and brought the captains of the hundreds. That's how the... Uh, 
Israelite army was organized according to groups of hundreds, and he brought out these captains of hundreds who were the bodyguards and the escorts of the king. This was the uh, group that guarded the uh, royal household and the palace, brought them into the house of the Lord to him, and he made a covenant with them and took an oath from them in the house of the Lord and showed them the king's son. So he's very wise in the way he approaches this. He's kept it secret for many years, and now he brings in those who can be trusted. And before he reveals the existence of Joash, he is going to call upon them to swear an oath of loyalty and secrecy. Now, we're told a little bit more about this in the parallel passage in Second King, Second uh, Chronicles, rather, 23, uh, 1 through 4. I've underlined some of the uh, things that are, in, that are revealed to us in Second Chronicles that aren't in the king's account. We're told there who the captains were. They're mentioned. There's Azariah, the son of Je- uh, Jeroham, Ishmael, the son of Je- Jehohonan, Azariah, the son of Ovid, Mahasiah, the son of Adiah, and Elishaphat, the son of Zikri. In verse 2, we're told, And they went throughout Judah and gathered the Levites from all the cities of Judah and the chief fathers of Israel, and they came to Jerusalem. So it's not just the leaders of these military units, but then they are deputized to go out and bring in the Levites because there is going to be a rededication of the temple involved with this, and so there's going to be a complete renewal of the commitment of the nation to God, which will come about in the covenant that that is made and renewed at this time. And we're told in verse uh, verses 3 and 4 of the Chronicles passage, Then all the assembly made a covenant with the king in the house of God, and he said to them, this would be Jehoiada, Behold, the king's son shall reign as the Lord has said of the sons of David. So this goes right back to the Davidic covenant. He is looking at history and what he is doing in terms of the promise of God and in terms of that covenant. That is how we are to look at life. We are to always look at life through the grid of these covenants because the major covenants with Israel lay the foundation for all of history, the Abrahamic covenant. God is going to bless all nations through the descendants of Abraham. And those who bless the seed of Abraham will be blessed, and those who curse the seed of Abraham will be cursed. And then that is further expanded in the uh, land covenant where the land of Israel was given to them permanently, the Davidic covenant where it's determined that the seed of David will be the line of the Messiah, and then eventually the new covenant. That is the grid for examining and evaluating all of human history. And so Jehoiada is not operating outside of the law. In fact, it is uh, Athaliah who has operated outside of the law and usurped the throne, taken it from the seed of David through the violent means of murder. And she has had all of the uh, legal heirs of the throne assassinated except just one. He is the hope. He is the only one left alive, and God has protected him through uh, Jehoiada and through his aunt uh, Jehoshabeth. So back in Second Kings 11.5, <clears throat> we read the ongoing instructions of Jehoiada, and this, I want you to realize how thoughtful he is. He has planned this out. This isn't some spur-of-the-moment event. He has taken a lot of time to think this through and to organize uh, the entire uh, security of what they are going to take place, of what's going to take place. And he says, this is what you shall do. One-third of you who come on duty on the Sabbath shall be keeping watch over the king's house. Now, what he means by that in terms of those who come on duty, remember under David, the priesthood was divided into 24 groups and they rotated so that they didn't all serve at the same time or they didn't all serve for a month, but they uh, they served in shifts within these 24 different uh, groupings of priests. And it seems that the military that served in the temple 
was also divided in much the way, same way so that you had some who would serve for uh, maybe eight hours and then they would go off duty and another group would come on for eight hours. And I say eight hours because they're divided into one-third, so that would seem to make sense. So one-third of you who come on duty on the Shabbat, the Sabbath, shall be keeping watch over the king's house. So he, uh, one-third of them are to watch over and guard the palace, because this is where Athaliah is, and so they have to watch what she is doing to make sure there's not a, a response, a successful response to this uh, coup that is taking place. In verse 6, he says, One-third shall be at the gate of Sur. This is the horse gate, and this is the Solomonic temple, so we're not exactly sure where that gate uh, gate was. It could very well be the gate that was on the southern side of the temple mount toward the palace of the king. Uh, verse, uh, then the verse goes on to say, And one-third at the gate behind the escorts. You shall keep the watch of the house, lest it be broken down. And so there is this guard that is set up all around the temple, around the palace, in order to ultimately protect the life of the king and protect the Davidic seed. Then in verse 7 we read, The two contingents of you, the two contingents of you that go off duty on the Sabbath, shall keep the watch of the house of the Lord for the king. So these other two groups that aren't on duty will still be on call and be watching the temple and surrounding the temple to make sure nothing uh, unexpected takes place. And then verse 8. But you shall surround the king on all sides, you sh- every man with his weapons in his hand, and whoever comes within range, let him be put to death. Now think about that. Anybody comes close. This is like the Secret Service, and if anybody even approaches the line, execute them immediately. Don't arrest them. Don't take them off for interrogation somewhere. Uh, don't give the... Uh, ACLU, an opportunity to, uh, or maybe it would be the uh, JCLU, the uh, <coughs> Judah Civil Liberties Union, to give them a chance to uh, in t- uh, take them aside and give them some sort of list of pseudo-rights. No, they're executed immediately. Uh, then he goes on to say, you are to be with the king as he goes out and as he comes in. You're to surround him at all times, and you are his his escort to protect him, the, him from anyone who is allied with Athaliah who seeks to, uh, would seek to kill him to keep her on the throne. And then we read in verse, uh, verse 9, So the captains of the hundreds did according to all that Jehoiada the priest commanded. Each of them took his men who were to be on duty on the Sabbath with those who were going off duty on the Sabbath came and came to Jehoiada the priest. And the priest gave the captains of hundreds the spears and shields which had belonged to King David. Now there's a reason for that in that he is making a, a clear statement that they are the constitutionally, by that I mean the, the Davidic, the, the line authorized by the Davidic covenant and the Mosaic law. And so he is, uh, he is arming them. Verse 11, the escorts then stood, every man with his weapons in his hand, all around the king, from the right side of the temple to the left side of the temple, by the altar and by the house. So that means they are, they have filled the outer courtyard, they have surrounded the external walls, they are on guard at every gate. And only then, when they have provided for complete security, do they bring out young Joash, seven years old, and they bring him out with tremendous, uh, tremendous pomp and circumstance. There is a formality here that takes them back to the foundation of the Jewish nation in the Mosaic Law. And they bring him out and they uh, will crown him as king and anoint him. And the priest would be in charge of this. There's no mention of the prophet. The only individual in authority spiritually was the high priest. And they 
<clears throat> they anointed him, and they clapped their hands, and they said, Long live the king, and then uh, there was tremendous clamor. The people were out seeing what was going on. There's a huge amount of noise, and Athaliah now is alerted, hears the noise, comes out to see what is going on. In verse 14, we read that when she looked, there she saw the king standing by a pillar according to Custom. Now, we're not sure what that custom is, but apparently after uh, crowning the king, he would be taken to stand by one of those external, uh, one of the pillars probably outside the temple, and there they would announce that he was the king. And all of the people then were rejoicing. They're singing hymns and blowing trumpets. And what does Athaliah do? She cries treason, but it's not treason because she's the traitor. How interesting it is that often the those with evil intent mask their intent with with the deception of claiming they are the ones that are actually following the law. They are the ones who are actually uh, the ones that are in the right. And the only way to get past that is to actually know what the right thing is. In their day, it was those who really knew the Torah, the Mosaic Law, understood the covenants, would be able to see past the deception of these claims of people like Athali and those in the north to be the true, the true rulers of the kingdom. In our time, it would be those who really know the law, the history of the United States, and those who know the Constitution. Because for the last a hundred plus years, we have had judicial activists claiming to be constitutionalists who have treated the U.S. Constitution as a living document, by a term that sounds good, but actually means that it can be redefined in each and every generation. And so that the intent of the founding fathers is not uh, how we should interpret the Constitution, but uh, we're to change it according to each a successive generation. That's just Kantian epistemology, that subjectivism I talked about earlier, applied to law. And it's also influenced by the the thinking of Darwinistic evolution. And if you want to understand that connection, then you need to come on Tuesday to the conference and listen to the paper that's going to be given by Dr. Andy Woods. And Andy was a lawyer before he went to Dallas Seminary, and he's going to be presenting a paper on how uh, Darwinistic evolution changed the way the law is understood and interpreted. And that will be very uh, eye-opening, I'm sure. So she cries out, treason, treason, but those who know don't uh, listen to her. And Jehoiada in verse 15 commands uh, <clears throat> the military units to arrest her, take her under guard, and to execute her instantly, but not in the house of the Lord. We can't violate the sanctity of the temple, so she is to be taken outside of the temple which they did outside of the gate of Sur, Sur being the Hebrew word for horse, outside of the horse gate to the king's house. There she was uh, executed. And then following that, there is a covenant that is made between Jehoiada and the people and the Lord. Now, we'll come back next time to look at the significance of that. But before we do, I want to stop and address uh, what is going on here in terms of the protection of the king in light of the doctrine of self-defense in the Scripture. The doctrine of self-defense, as it's laid out in the Scripture, is really the ground or the foundation for the doctrine of just war. It's related to the doctrine of private ownership of property and the importance of private ownership of property. It comes out of a more basic doctrine, which is the distinctiveness and the sanctity of human life. So I will give you several points this morning related to the doctrine of, of self-defense. The first point is that the life of every human being has value because every human being is created in the image and the likeness of God. In Genesis 1, 26 and 27, God said, Let us make man in our image and our likeness. Among all of God's creatures... Only human beings are created in his image and likeness. Angels are not created in his image and likeness. Uh, animals, uh, the beasts of the field, the mammals, the uh, creatures of the sea are not created in his image. 
this indicates something that is distinct about man. It relates not only to the immaterial makeup of man in terms of his soul and his ability to have a relationship with God, but it also relates to his mission, to his purpose, because the idea of being an image or representation of somebody, is another word for being in the image and likeness, is something we're, we're familiar with. If you are a representative of someone, then you are to represent them. And man was to represent God to creation. He was to rule over the birds of the air, the fish of the sea, and the beasts of the field. That's defined in context there in Genesis 1, 26 and 27. It is not just talking about the abstract nature of his makeup, but it is talking about his role and his function to represent God, to rule over creation. The technical term for that is that man was the vicegerent, not vice-regent, but vice-gerent, which means that he is the representative of a higher authority. So God is setting up man as the landlord to rule and to reign over uh, the planet. God is Man is given the responsibility to rule over everything, and so every human being is in the image of and likeness of God. It says God made them in his image and likeness, male and female, he made them. So the male doesn't have more of the image and the female less, but all human beings are equally in the image and likeness of God and to represent him. Now that image is not destroyed when Adam sins. It is distorted and warped by sin, but every human being is still in the image and likeness of God and has value because they are in the image and likeness of God. They're not valuable because of what they can produce for society. See, that's the problem that we're going to get into and that other nations have gotten into with government-controlled health care is eventually if the government is paying for your uh, health services and paying your doctor bills, then they're going to get to the point where they're going to define what you can and cannot do, and whether you have reached a point where you should or should not live. I saw a little bit of this uh, last year when I went to uh, up to Canada and was teaching with uh, uh, John Cross up, up in Canada with Good Seed. And we went out to a restaurant, and those of you who know me know that I prefer my beef just restored to room temperature only. And we went out to uh, to get a hamburger, and I was told that, no, I could not get it rare. I could not get it uh, medium rare, but uh, according to the law, I could only get it uh, medium. That's because if I were to get some sort of bacterial infection from beef that had not been cooked enough, then the government would have to pay for my health bill. So, see, that's the kinds of intrusiveness that will come when the government's involved with health care. And it will happen when they define life at the end of life, whether or not people should continue to live or not. And they will make that decision based on their their their. Uh, functionality, whether they are able to produce something that is determined by the government to be of value to society. Life, human life is not valuable in and of itself, but human life is determined as valuable because of what it can produce in terms of the good, uh, good, that which is good for the whole. And so we see in the scripture that every human life, no matter what the person is like, no matter how smart or how uh, how dumb or how ignorant they may be, no matter how attractive or unattractive they may be, no matter how physically fit uh, they may or may not be, no matter how healthy they may be, every single human being has the same value because they are created in the image and likeness of God, not because they're God's children. And that's what liberal theology says. The doctrine is called the universal fatherhood of God, and liberal theology says that all human beings are God's children. That is not what image and likeness means. It doesn't mean we're God's children. Scripture says that we are, in fact, Jesus told the Pharisees that they were of their father the devil. And until we are saved, that is, until a person believes that Jesus died on the cross for their sins and they are born again or regenerated, 
they are a child of the devil. It's only when you are uh, a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and have been regenerated that you become a child of God. But value of every human being is grounded in the fact that they are created in the image and the likeness of God. And so this becomes the basis then for capital punishment. In Genesis chapter 9, uh, verse 5, we see that the basis for capital punishment is grounded in this absolute, this absolute of the, the uh, image of God. We read in Genesis 9, 5, Surely for your lifeblood I will demand a reckoning. From the hand of every beast I will require it. And from the hand of man, uh, from the hand of man of every man's brother, I will require the life of man. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For it will deter crime. Doesn't say that, does it? Golly, but see, that's how people who are against the death penalty have framed the argument. Never let your enemy frame the argument. And unfortunately, too many people who argue for the death penalty are not arguing from a biblical basis, so they frame it the wrong way. The issue is that is that every human being, every life has value because they're in the image of God, and therefore when someone violates that image and destroys that image, then they have they have lost the right to life. So in terms of looking at the doctrine of self-defense, the first point I made was the life of every human being has value because every human being is created in the image and likeness of God, Genesis 1, 26 and 27. Second point, though, there's, a, there's an exception. There's a caveat. There is not an absolute unequivocal right to life in the Scripture. Just because you're alive doesn't mean you have the right to continue li- living no matter what. That is the liberal position that flows out of the view that the, of the universal fatherhood of God, which is a distortion of Genesis 1, 26 and 27. The scriptures clearly make it known that there are circumstances where a person can forfeit the privilege of living. They can forfeit that privilege of living. It's not a constitutionally guaranteed right to be alive under any and all circumstances. This occurs, according to Scripture, when people commit certain crimes which reveal a level of soul depravity and perversion that is so great that that person has now forfeited the right to live. They have given up the privilege of life, and one of these cases is in the case of first-degree murder or homicide as it is applied. This is laid down in the Noahic Covenant, which is in Genesis chapter 9, which is a universal covenant made with all mankind, and there are other promises in that covenant. One of the other provisions of that covenant is that we are to eat meat. Up to that point, man was not a meat eater, but they are to eat meat. A third provision of that covenant was that we were uh, man was to, they, they got a promise that he would not ever again destroy the earth by water. And the sign that he would, that this covenant was still in effect, was the rainbow. So when you look at the rainbow, I want you to quit thinking that that means that God's not going to destroy the earth by water. That's true. But I want you to think that means you can go enjoy a good steak and celebrate the Noahic covenant by having a good steak and just have the meat restored to normal body temperature. I mean, that's... That's the way beef was designed, designed to be eaten. And then also remember that this means that those who have committed certain capital crimes need to forfeit their life immediately, if not sooner, under the, uh, under the uh, oper- just operation of the court system because all of those are part of the same covenant. So the rainbow is a sign that that covenant, including the right to eat meat, including capital punishment and including the promise that God won't destroy the earth again by, uh, by water, those are all still in effect. Now, a lot of times people say, well, what about those passages that you have in the Bible that talk about you shouldn't kill? And somebody will eventually bring up Exodus 20, uh, 13, which is accurately translated, thou shalt not murder. And in most modern 
uh, translations. For example, the New King James Version translates it, Thou shalt not murder. The New American Standard Version, New International Version, most modern versions translate it, Thou shalt not murder. There are about eight or nine different words in Hebrew uh, related to the taking of a life. And this particular word is the Hebrew word ratzak, which means to murder. When I went through Hebrew, uh, studying Hebrew at Dallas Seminary, we began to learn how to do word studies in our second year. And the first word study we had to do was a word study on Ratzak. I think they were trying to make, a, make sure everybody understood that some things were just translated wrong in the, uh, in the King James. This is a prohibition of murder. It is not a, a prohibition on all categories of taking human life because God has already delegated to human beings in the Noahic covenant that under certain circumstances it is the obligation and responsibility of human beings to take the life of other human beings who have so forfeited the right to life because of the fact that they have committed uh, certain crimes. Under the Mosaic law, other crimes called for the forfeiture of life, crimes of idolatry. And those who led people in idolatry meant capital punishment. Rape called for capital punishment. Blaspheming the name of the Lord, Leviticus 24, 16 to 17, meant uh, capital punishment. Now, that's not, that's not using the Lord's name as a curse word for those of you who haven't uh, uh, thought this through. Blaspheming the name of the Lord and taking the Lord's name in vain occurs when a person takes the name of the covenant God of Israel and assigns it to their agenda falsely. Taking the Lord's name in vain isn't using the Lord's name as a curse word. It is saying that this agenda comes from God. When you hear someone in church stand up and say, God spoke to me and told us to do this, if God didn't speak to them and tell them to do that, that's when they've taken the Lord's name in vain. That is the kind of blasphemy that is a capital offense in the Mosaic Law. It makes you stop and think a little bit. If you claim to be a prophet of God and your prophecy did not come true, it was the instant death penalty. God took himself seriously because he's the ultimate king in Israel, and any of these acts related to blaspheming his name, false prophets, idolatry, all of those were acts of treason. So treason is also a capital offense. But there were very and there were various other kinds of things that were also brought into this, all based upon the value of human life and human beings. For example, Exodus twenty one, twenty eight and twenty nine were told if an ox gores a man or a woman to death, then the ox shall surely be stoned. Notice that. If an animal, any animal, kills a human being, and this just reiterates what was stated in the Noahic Covenant. The Noahic Covenant had the same provision. If any creature sheds man's blood, then man was to destroy the life of that creature, whether it was a beast or whether it's another human being. So Exodus 21:28 is not giving any new information. It's just reiterating what was in the Noahic Covenant. The... the uh, the, the ox, if an ox gored someone then it was to be, and they died, then uh, the ox was to be destroyed, and its flesh should not be eaten. You're not going to profit from the murder of someone. But the owner of the ox would be acquitted if the ox uh, had just did this and it had no, uh, no prior history. In Exodus uh, 21, 29, it goes on to say, but if the ox tended to thrust with its horn in times past, in other words, if this has occurred before, if this has occurred before and it has been made known to his owner and he is aware that there is this trend in the life of the beast, then he has not kept it confined so that it has killed a man or a woman, then the ox shall be stoned and its owner shall also be put to death. Now, that has a little contemporary application because it was just this last week that we saw this uh, tragic death by this uh, trainer at uh, SeaWorld in Florida. And the uh, killer whale, or actually their whale killers, uh, took the life of uh, Don uh, Branchow, who was a very experienced trainer. And this is the third time in the life of that particular animal that he has caused the death of a human being. 
and according to the values of Scripture, that creature should have already been put to death, and all of its owners are guilty of first-degree homicide by not having provided the necessary protections. But you see, in a distorted pagan world where you value the creature over the creator and you no longer value human life because human beings are created in the image of God, see, they're just accidents of protoplasm that just came along because lightning happened to hit the right spot at the right time a couple of million years ago, then human life has no value, so or, and it's no more valuable than this, this sea creature, and so you say, well, everything's just fine and good. And this is just what you should expect in a culture that is dominated uh, by pagan ideas. So what we see from all of this is a third point, the foundation of self-defense is a recognition that all human life is valuable and must be protected, even though that may cost the life of someone who intends to take the life of another or who threatens to take the life of another. See, if, if you just feel like your life is threatened, Scripture absolves you of guilt in taking the life of the person you think threatens, uh, threatens your life. But there is an obligation to protect life uh, on all of us. Passages such as Psalm 82.4, Deliver the poor and needy, free them from the hand of the wicked. We are to be vigilant to protect those who cannot protect themselves. Uh, Proverbs 24.11, Deliver those who are drawn towards death, those who are on a course that will lead them to death, either because they make personally bad decisions or because others have. And the injunction is hold back those who are stumbling to the slaughter. We are uh, enjoined to protect those whose lives may be in jeopardy. Human life has value. And the third verse here, I'm looking at this in terms of an application, interpretation, is he's talking to the watchmen of the prophets that they are to warn of coming a catastrophe, but there's an application here to individuals that we are to be prepared to protect against those who may seek to do us harm. Uh, Ezekiel 33:6 states, "But if the watchman sees the sword coming, and does not blow the trumpet, and the people are not warned, and the sword comes and takes any person from among them, he is taken away in his iniquity. But his blood I will require at the watchman's." Hand, that is the other watchman. So there's a, it lays down the principle that we are to protect others, and if we're negligent in protecting others, then it could be that our life should be taken in capital punishment. Now, a fourth principle, and I don't have this verse up here, I want you to turn to Exodus 22. Exodus 22. This is the foundation verse for all, uh, all these passages related to self defense. Exodus chapter 22. In Exodus chapter 22, verse 2, we read, If the thief is found breaking in, in fact, this is part of the background for those who thought correctly when they interpreted the uh, uh, legislation in the state of Texas related to the ca- what's called the castle doctrine in terms of the homeowner being able to protect his life. If the thief is found breaking in and he is struck so that he dies, There shall be no guilt for his bloodshed. And the point here is that if someone is breaking in and they are threatening to take the life or the property of an individual, then the person whose life is threatened or whose property is threatened has the right to take the life of the person who is threatening them, uh, and there is no guilt for that bloodshed. But notice the next verse. If the sun has risen on him, there shall be guilt for his bloodshed. He should make full restitution. If he has nothing, then he shall be sold, then, then he shall be sold uh, for his theft. So the point that he's making is if you wait two hours and there's no longer an immediate threat and then you kill the burglar, then you're guilty of murder. But at the time that you are under threat, or the threat of the loss of property, then you have the right to take the life of the, the thief. That doesn't mean you have to do it. it does, it's not a mandate, but you have the right to do that. And so under point number five, the case law of the Mosaic Law shows that on the basis of this law and others like it, 
when a person's private property is threatened and their individual life is threatened, then deadly force is acceptable. And when you look at some of the other verses I quoted from Ezekiel 33.6 and Psalm 82.4, there is an expectation that we will defend ourselves and defend our properties and defend the property and the lives of those who are defenseless. Now, two other key passages in the Old Testament also demonstrate the right of self-defense. And in light of time, I'm just going to hit these very quickly. The first is in Nehemiah. The Jews have returned from the uh, the captivity uh, under uh, Nehemiah, the authorization of Artaxerxes, the mandate of Artaxerxes to rebuild the wall around Jerusalem. But he's meeting opposition from the uh, that era's form of the so-called Palestinians, and those people of various mixed ethnic backgrounds who were resettled by the Assyrians into Samaria are uh, are fighting them. And the leader was Sanballat. He's sort of, uh, you know, Sanballat and Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites. This is the early version of Hezbollah and Hamas um, and the PLO. And they heard that the walls of Jerusalem were being restored and the uh, gaps were beginning to be closed. In other words, there's going to be defensible walls around Jerusalem so they can't uh, bring about their criminality. So all of them conspired together to come and attack Jerusalem and create confusion. And the response was that Nehemiah positioned men behind the lower parts of the wall at the openings, and he said, people according to their families with their swords, their spears, and their bows. The government didn't issue them spears, bows, and swords. They had their own private ownership of weapons. Verse 14, And I looked and arose and said to the nobles, to the leaders, and to the rest of the people, Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, great and awesome, and fight for your brethren. See, it's that right of self-defense and to defend others is emphasized there. But ultimately, it's a recognition that our protection is from the Lord. And it is in light of his overall uh, protection that we have the authorization to protect ourselves, recognizing it's under his under his guidance and direction. Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, great and awesome. Fight for your brethren, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your uh, in your houses. There is a <clears throat> mandate to protect your lives, the lives of those who can't, and property. Verse 15, It happened when our enemies heard that it was known to us, and that God had brought their plot to nothing, that all of us returned to the wall, every one to his work. So it was from that time on that half of my servants worked at construction, while the other half held the spears, the shields, the bows, and wore armor. They were constantly prepared, and they had their weapons at their side in case they needed them. Uh, verse 17 goes on to say, Those who built on the walls, those who carried burdens, loaded themselves so that with one hand they worked at construction, and with the other hand they held a weapon. They knew that if they were going into a neighborhood where there was a possibility that somebody might break into their car, somebody might mug them, then they had the right to protect themselves and to carry a weapon in order to do that. Uh, Verse 18, Every one of the builders had his sword girded at his side as he built, and the one who sounded the trumpet was beside me. Now, some people might say, well, that's okay to have a sword or a knife, but you can't have a firearm. A sword was the highest, highest, most technologically advanced weapon of the day. And the Bible is authorizing that we need to be able to defend ourselves with, with whatever the highest and most recent technology is. Because if you don't have the highest technology, the criminal will, and then you can't defend yourself. Same thing happens in Esther with the Jews are in Persia, and there's been a plot against them. And once that was uh, discovered, it was too late. But the king authorized them to protect themselves. And in Esther chapter 8, verses 11 and 12, we're told that all the Jews banded together and protected themselves uh, to destroy, kill, and annihilate all the forces of any people or province that would assault them. Now, there's no change in the New Testament. In Luke chapter 22, Jesus told the disciples, this is, this is at the end of the Passover meal. We usually don't go into these verses uh, when we have communion. This happens after they had Passover. They're getting ready to go to Gethsemane, and Jesus has a little conversation in private with them. He says to them, when I sent you, this is 
about a year and a half earlier, when I sent you out without money, the money bag, knapsacks, and sandals, did you lack anything? And they said nothing. And they said to them, but now, in other words, there's a new, it's new. Things have changed. You know, the Israel has rejected me as the king. We're going to have a new dispensation, so there's new instructions. But now he who has a money bag, let him take it. And likewise, a knapsack. Okay, I'm not going to have you raise your hand to find out how many people here carry a wallet and money in their credit cards when they travel or how many of them take food with them when they travel. But see, if you can do those things and it's authorized here, then you can do the next. He who has no sword, let him sell his garment and buy one. For I say to you that this which is written must still be accomplished in me. And the point here is he was numbered with the transgressors. And then he says to the disciples in verse 38, uh, he's asked them if they have a sword. And they say, look here, Lord, we have two swords. Now, while they were sitting there at Passover, they had their concealed weapons. (laughs) They had their swords with them. I never thought about that till this morning I'm going through this. They have their swords because this is the end of that Passover meal. They say, Lord, we've got our swords with us. And what does he say? Well, you shouldn't have brought that. No. (laughs) He said, okay, we've got two. It's good. And they are going to go out, and now they go to Gethsemane. Now, the reason for that, I believe, is to defend the Lord because, as he points out in verse 37, he is to be arrested that night. But it has to follow the follow God's plan, and he can't. There can't be some situation where some uh, uh, some somebody in the mob just reaches out and kills him. He's got to go to the cross. So the swords are there for self-defense. Now, Peter wasn't really up on all of this, and he's indiscreet in his application of the concealed carry law. Just wanted to make sure you all got that in context. So um, when the, the Roman soldiers come to them, after Jesus has gone out to pray and the disciples have prayed and Jesus had to keep waking, waking Peter and John up, he says, they come to them when they see the Roman soldiers come and say, Lord, uh, shall we strike with the sword? Now, it never records his a- answer. Not in one of the Gospels does it record his answer. So either they, they said they said it real fast and then Peter just drew his sword and whacked, but we don't know. All we know, verse 50, one of them, which is Peter, we know that from the other accounts, struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. And John, we know his name was Malchus. But Jesus answered and said, permit this, and he touched his ear and he healed him. Now, he doesn't rebuke Peter. He says in the, in the other accounts, he says, Peter, put your sword away. He doesn't say throw your sword away. You shouldn't have brought it. He said, put it away. Now, Peter's guilty of being indiscreet and foolish in the way he applied the principle of self-defense because it wasn't, there really wasn't a threat. He jumped the gun. Unfortunately, Jesus was there to uh, heal the, the uh, servant and, and solve the problem. And so from these passages, what we learn is that there is a, a right to self-defense that is clearly affirmed throughout the Scriptures, but there is also the need for discretion and wisdom in the use of violent force because in the use of violent force, you're still dealing with someone, even though they're a criminal, even though they're a threat, who is in the image and the likeness of God. And so violence is the last resort. That's why the Lord says, said to uh, Peter in the Matthew account, he said to Peter that uh, when he says, those who live by the sword will die by the sword, what, he's, what he is saying is those who make violence their first resort are the ones who will end up being destroyed by violence. That's what that means. Now, people will bring that up. They'll also bring up the passage in Matthew 5.39 where Jesus says, I tell you not to resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him. And we've we studied that before. This is not talking about self-defense here. Uh, slapping someone on the cheek was an idiom for, for giving someone an insult. They did not have a problem in Israel, people walking around slapping other people on the cheek. <laughs> this was not a major problem in the ancient world. 
Jesus isn't talking about cheek slapping. He's talking about how you respond when somebody gives you a personal insult. And what he is saying is don't take offense. Don't wear your feelings on your shirt sleeve, in other words, but uh, just turn and don't take offense and let it let it slide. So what we've learned from this is the Bible clearly affirms from Genesis all the way through the New Testament the right to self-defense. To allow a murder or a theft when it could be prevented is morally wrong. To put the life of a criminal over the life of a victim is morally wrong. We see that every person has the right to defend life and property to the point of taking the life of those who immediately threaten their life and property, but it doesn't mean that they should. Even the Lord commuted David's sentence. David's guilty of two capital crimes, murder and adultery under the law, and God commuted that sentence and did not call for David's life. So just because it's a legal option doesn't mean it's ne- it should always be invoked. There is room for grace. And underneath all of this, we have a statement of Jesus in John chapter 15, where he says, This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this than to lay down one's life for his friends. The application of that, of course, in that immediate context is that the Lord was going to die on the cross for the sins of the world. But an implication, an application of that is that those who are willing to defend the life and the liberty of others are demonstrating this tremendous love that God is talking about in John, that the Lord's talking about in John 13, John 14, and John 15, that is exemplified by him on the cross. And those who are willing to defend the life and the property of others, especially in the military, those who serve in the police, those who even serve in the in, in fire departments, these are worthy of great praise because of their devotion to ultimately saving life. And Jesus demonstrated that in the greatest way at the cross when he died there for our sins. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word uh, this morning, to be encouraged and strengthened in our understanding of these important doctrines, to realize the value and the sanctity of human life, to understand how the emphasis in scripture also gives us the right of self-defense and protection. Father, we pray that If there's anyone here this morning that's unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that both sure and certain. Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. He died for all of our sins. So that sin is not the issue. The issue is faith in Jesus Christ, trusting in him and him alone for our salvation. And right now, right where you sit, you can trust Christ for your salvation. Believe that Jesus died for your sins. And at that instant you have eternal life. Father, we pray that you would help us to understand the things we study today and see how they apply in our own thinking. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.